be interesting, but I had no idea just how fascinating and how much depth would be in this conversation. Not from me, from Luke. He's absolutely incredible. Just to give you a little background of Luke, Luke is a certified situational awareness instructor, a former U.S. Marine, founder of Core Human Competence, LLC, and he's the creator of Dangerously Competent, a personal safety and self-sufficiency training program. For over 15 years, Luke has taught individuals, families, and organizations to overcome challenges, assess risk, respond swiftly, and win. He is the author of The Primal Primer and an Implied Theory Fellow at the Natural Law Institute. He's, Luke is awesome, like just awesome. And of course, I had no idea he's a Minnesotan, so he's not too far from me. So we should have done this in person, but nonetheless, I hope you enjoy. It's not very long, but it's there's a lot of very powerful information. And also, please check out all the links that are below that are in the description so you can follow his journey and just check out what he's doing because it's super cool. And again, it's not what I expected. Also, want to give a shout out to my own website, joshuatberglund.com. We are doing buy one, give one. That is forever. Our foundation in my business merging into two, one organization that does multiple things, but we have a buy one, give one program. So all of my services, including the broadcast packages are buy one, give one. And that's meant for you to give and pay it forward, not me. So anyway, God bless you. Thank you for being here and enjoy. What's up everyone? My name is Joshua and welcome to a conversation with Joshua T. Berglund and Mr. Luke Weinhagen. This is a very interesting conversation and one that I, I mean, look, I thought it was gonna be interesting. <laughs> What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to a conversation with Joshua T. Berglund and Luke Weinhagen. I'm really excited to have you on. This feels like a very timely message that you have in sharing what you're all about and what you are here to do, like your role that you play in this world, like the way that you're giving back uh, to me is really inspiring. And at the same time, I'm very curious to know what someone like yourself who specializes in this specific area like the kind of it's got to be uncomfortable because i would imagine that some people look at you like a crazy person like for wanting to do this because i think that as a society we're going through life with our heads up our butt and so when we see somebody that specializes in what you do it's why would you need that but for people like me i'm seeing what you do and go how can I sign up? So before we get into all that, Luke, can you tell us today what you're grateful for and why? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it basically ironic given what we're going to talk about here. But the thing that I'm grateful for today most is that we live in a time where technology has made it possible for us to have conversations like this, no matter where we're located, no matter what kind of 
physical distances between us, no matter what kind of social distances between us, no, no, no matter the distance between us. We live in a time where we can reach out and connect with each other in ways that just were never possible before. And I'm, ex I'm extremely grateful for that opportunity. I am too. I love it because without technology, I would not be able to be making my dreams come true. And yet at the same time, you're right. It's with these advances in technology, we're also sacrificing a lot. And one of those potentially our safety, our freedom, and definitely our privacy. But I want to ask you, what got you into, you're a certified situational awareness instructor. What motivates somebody to go into that field. So the thing that really drove me into looking for that was I started exploring why cooperation is becoming such a problem for people. You know, why do why are we seeing such a deterioration in our ability to cooperate with each other? And that kind of became a rabbit hole for me. And so I started working my way through that rabbit hole and I started dug my way down. I've looked at a bunch of different psychology about it, a bunch of different law, a bunch of all the social, the social sciences and that to try to figure out what what is getting in the way of cooperation? And so I'm digging my way down through that rabbit hole and I start to hit the bottom. <laughs> and that, that, I had to go all the way down to the bottom to start finding answers, to start finding solutions, right? And so what I mean by that is, I don't know if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. The concept that you have to satisfy your basic human needs before you can even address the needs that are supported by those basic needs. That's what they mean by a hierarchy is the lower ones support and make possible and accessible the next level up. Of course, Maslow wasn't the first one to come up with these concepts. It goes back as far as Plato was talking about it with his forms and things like that, the lower forms and the higher forms, right? But I had to go all the way down there to find out, okay, here's where problem, I, in the argument I make is that's where the problem starts, right? And so at the bottom layer of Maslow's hierarchy needs are those physiological needs, you know, the food, the water, the shelter. And then the second layer is that safety and security. And so that that's what got me looking at the situational awareness stuff is how do I solve, how do I address, how do I fill back in, restore what's missing at that second level, at that safety and security. And that's when I that's when I started looking at this situational awareness as a vehicle to, to address that issue, as a mechanism to address that issue. And then of course that became its own rabbit hole. Right. So the, 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 there's so much depth and material there because what it is, it's situational awareness and it's behavioral analysis. Right. So it's those two things paired together to kind of build the competence to navigate the world as it is. What's the difference between that and profiling? There is a, the, the profiling is the professional application of those concepts. Right. It's a very targeted, very specific application of those general concepts. Right. But it's also as simple as if you look, and this one boggles my mind, and if you look at the research, somewhere between 60 and 70% of all human communication is nonverbal. And how much time do we spend learning English, learning grammar, learning vocabulary, right? Throughout our entire childhood, throughout our entire education, right? We spend hours and hours of time learning those things. How much time do we spend on learning how to read the nonverbal cues that other people are giving us? None. No None. one taught us that. Right. And, and we wonder why we wonder why we're so terrible at communication. We don't <laughs> learn 60 to 70 percent of the things that we need to know in order to effectively communicate with each other. I believe that. And we right. definitely suck at listening. That's, an, that's another thing. Wow. So that, that, that's some of the hooks that got me into the situation. And then, of course, we live in a world where threats are, are increasing, the potential for kinetic threats, just our proximity to each other, we're close to each other, we're close to a lot of different people with a lot of different priorities, a lot of different problems that they're working work through. So our risk of kinetic threats is increasing. And so being able to recognize, get out ahead of and recognize when 
those things might be emerging in whatever environment you're in, I think is extremely valuable. And we don't, again, that's another one of those things we just don't, te- we don't teach our kids. Instead, and I understand the attempt beyond this, but instead we teach, don't judge people about how they look. We teach them, treat everybody equally. And those, those are important concepts, but there's a nuance in there that, that, that if we don't teach it correctly, we lose, we, we undermine our ability to safely navigate our environments. I love that you said that because it's, there's a fine line between looking and judging somebody and just assuming that they're going to be bad or evil or right. whatever. And, right. and you can li- you could list off a million different things that you could identify, right. but teaching it the right way. And that's the problem is like we have all of these agendas to raise awareness for different causes because we want to make things fair. And I get it. But the way that we're going about it is almost like being molested. Because right. they're just forcing these things down our throats, but we're not learning while that's happening. Like we're just going, okay, you're it's like we're being beat into some kind of compliance there, but we're not really understanding what it is that we're complying to. And that is extremely dangerous. So how do you suggest the to teach these things the right way? Because this is a it is a slippery slope. You what you teach matters. But it's a slippery slope where it can go the other way. And then all of a sudden you have discrimination and racism and all these other potential things at play. Right. Oh, can you share maybe some examples of the proper way of going about this? Sure. Absolutely. Just to provide a little bit more context, we've humanity existed in 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 a system of nature that demanded that we evolve or adapt to that system so that we could recognize our, the threats and the dangers that existed in those environments, mm-hmm. right? We evolved that capacity. And we did that for generations and generations, right? It was just, it's part of what makes us human is this ability to read our environments and make decisions about what's occurring in those environments, right? Mm-hmm. When you hear the stick break behind you, you need to be able to recognize that's a potential threat and turn it and see it, right? We have these whole, we have these whole evolved mechanisms of the fight, flight, or freeze response, things like that. But they're very important to, to being human and to surviving environments. And so what they require is an ability to pick up signals from your environment, from the actual physical environment around you and from the people in that environment. We're all giving off cues as to our intent, as to our desires, as to our, our feelings, our emotions. We're giving off cues all the time. It goes back to that nonverbal communication, just like the environment's giving us cues, animals in the environment, all the things in the environment, right? And so what we teach, rather than looking at somebody and judging them because they look a certain way, what we're talking about here is how do we develop the skill to read the cues that person's giving off? So we're focused entirely on behavior. Again, it's behavioral analysis, right? It's not characteristic analysis it's behavioral analysis so one of the big one of the big concepts in the book that i try to that i try to convey is and in the work that i do with organizations is this idea that you have to develop the skill set to to create what's called a baseline and the baseline is what is expected or what's normal or what ought to be present in an environment right and it's important to to develop that skill set to do so quickly so that you can recognize the reason that we want to do this you can recognize when an anomaly exists in that environment. So when something has been added to that environment or that behavior or that person, place, or thing that wasn't or isn't supposed to be there or that isn't normally there or something that has been removed from that person, place, behavior, or thing that ought to be. So when we're interacting with somebody and we do something that we anticipate triggers a specific response and we don't get that specific response, then we should register that as an anomaly. One, One of the examples I use frequently is... 
that the idea of a coffee shop and because they're so ubiquitous, right? Everybody's been to a coffee shop. Everybody knows a coffee shop. We walk into a coffee shop, we expect certain things. You're going to see a line of people waiting to have their order taken. You're going to hear the sound of coffee machines grinding up the beans and making the coffee and things like that, percolating the coffee. We're going to see the employees, the staff at the coffee shop interacting with each other, interacting with the customers. All of those things we expect to see in a coffee shop. That That represents our baseline for that coffee shop. And we do this just naturally, right? And that's part of the problem is none of us are doing this consciously. And that's one of the things I'm trying to shift is let's start paying, we get a little bit more plugged into our environment so we know what's going on around us. It's hard to do that when you're on your phone, huh? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. That's one of my biggest pet peeves is seeing people walking around, staring at their, staring at that. How more detached from your environment can you be? Then be completely focused on something else. An example of an anomaly, like let's say you walk into this coffee shop with all of that baseline in place, all of those expectations in place, reasonably, right? That's a reasonable baseline for a coffee shop. But you walk in and there's nobody behind the counter and you can't see an employee anywhere. Hmm. Right. Now that would that ought to register as an anomaly. Sure. And for most people it does. The problem that we've run into is we've conditioned ourselves to dismiss those kinds of anomalies. We start making up in our mind reasons for why that's there rather than just recognizing it as an anomaly and looking for more input. Right. We were we start saying, Oh, they're probably in back doing something or they're in the bathroom or, yeah. or whatever. We don't know any of those things. We're making up, we're filling in a blank. And what we ought to be doing is responding to that blank as an anomaly and waiting for or looking for another cue or signal as to what's going on rather than deciding and projecting our decision onto that environment. But a lot of the things I was talking about earlier, the, this training and conditioning that we get to to ignore the differences that we see, to ignore the deviations from norms, to ignore all those things, that undermines that intuition, that undermines that gut read of the room, that undermines our ability to build a baseline and recognize anomalies, right? And so. We want to account for all of those differences in people and differences in preferences and things like that. But we want to focus on, focus our attention on the behavior that we're seeing and exhibited and recognize those deviations from expectations and not fill in the blanks when, we, when those happen, but be willing to accept that is a deviation and then let the signals come in. How much focus goes on people's eyes when you're analyzing situations or people? Uh, almost none. And the reason for that... <laughs> By the time you can see clearly what their eyes are doing, they're so close to you that if they are a threat, it's too late to make any decision about what you're going to do there. Fascinating. So the first thing you want to look oh. for is if the first thing you look at is the hands are the weapon of the body. Right? They hold the tools. They hold the weapons. They signify intent more than any other part of the body. Right? People are pointing. They're, they're gesturing. There's things like that. Hands are the, the outside of our mouths. Our hands are our next biggest communicator. Right. And then the next one, really all things, I don't know if you've ever engaged in any kind of, if you've ever been in in fight training or anything like that, but it's the hips that are the next. The hips drive the action of the entire rest of the body, right? So hands and hips, and then you work out from there is what you're looking at. You're reading a body, right? Now I need to go out in public and practice. Think about things that you can't move your body without your hips driving that action. Yeah, so your hips that's are true. That's actually how, that's, I remember playing football. I was always watch the hips. Yep. (laughs) Everything else could pick you out. Watch the yeah. hips. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Your head's not your head's not going anywhere that your hips don't tell it to go. So <laughs> that's true. I yeah, yeah, we're not going anywhere. That is unbelievable. So I like all of this is seems it seems important, especially now I'm gonna sound like a conspiracy theorist. Let's just say that shit hits the fan. Right. And we have a civil war. Mm-hmm. Of sorts, or a real civil war. I don't. Know. 
how can this type of training help a family protect itself? Sure. So one of the concepts that that in the situational awareness community that gets mm-hmm. that's talked about a lot, in the way it gets presented a lot, is this idea, this concept called left of bang. Right. That's a big one, left of bang, right? So bang is the bad event. Bang is the kinetic event. Bang is the altercation with the hostile entity. Bang is your car crash or whatever. It's the significant negative occurrence that we're trying to pay attention to, be aware of the potential for, right? And so being left of bang means you're reading the signs and signals that your environment and the people in your environment are giving off so that you can respond to those signs and signals before the bang event rolls over the top of you. What most of us do is bang happens, and then we have to react to it. We have to figure out what to do after the bad thing has occurred. We have to figure out how to how to react after we get punched in the face. We have to figure out how to react once bad guy pulls out the weapon, and we got to get our family out of there. Yeah. We want to be able to we want to train ourselves and be able to read the body language of the bad guy to know that guy's about to do something. Let's get out of here now before he does the thing. And so you can take that concept. You can start to see how it applies across all kinds of situations, right? Let's say we are in the without rule of law situation, right? And we have to navigate. Now we have to navigate all, every environment we're in now is a hostile environment. So the skill set then to navigate hostile environments becomes one of the most valuable skill sets you could possibly have because that's specifically what you're confronted with. Once we without rule of law, we're without the norms, we're without any expectation of behavioral homogeneity right? We're not, we can't expect any behavior out of anybody we encounter that every engagement is a hostile engagement and we have to read the intent through their body language. I got to ask you something because it just came to my mind and I, it's probably going to sound insane, but I need to ask because I don't know the answer. In a case like this, when we have a hostile situation where there's rioting and looting and things like that, or families at danger, when there's lawlessness, is the law still, you can't kill people? Like, in other words, if you're coming and threatening us, am I allowed to kill you? Yeah, and I, I believe that there is a distinction between killing and murder. Yeah. Murder is the violation of the law. It's the intentional killing outside of a situation where you're protecting yourself and your loved ones and things like that. But I absolutely believe that each of us, like all complex organisms on the entire planet, ha- have the reasonable expectation that we're going to defend ourselves if confronted with potentially lethal threat. Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, and I think that's important to skill set to develop. It's not what I focus on the book or even in the work that I do in my frame. How to get but, away with murder. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not recommending that we no, go down that path. I'm not either. Oh. For the record, and, 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 I'm and, not recommending it either. I'm well, and really, the, book, but not- the work that I do, my whole goal is that we never get to that point. If we've learned how to read each other well enough, we learn, we reestablish the foundation that we need to have in place in order to effectively cooperate with each other. We never get to that point. We become valuable. We become way too valuable to each other to ever risk that kind of hostility. Right. And that's what I want to, that's what I want to see happen. Right? That's what I want to get back to is us exchanging value like that <laughs> rather than exchanging dependence, which is what we're doing now. Oh, yeah, I'm all about the kingdom lifestyle, not the one that gets bastardized on social media, but that the trick, the exchange of value for value and community. Right. That's I I'm almost rooting for everything to hit the fan so we can have a reset like this right. and start over yeah. because yeah. the way we're going, I don't like very much. And I really don't like it seeing people hate each other. Yeah. Over. I don't even think most people know why they really hate each other. They think they know, but really, if you get to the root of it, I don't think we really hate each other. 
but yet somehow we've been convinced that we do. And we have all of these things that we're not in common. And I am hated. Like, I don't want to see a civil war. I don't want to see any of this stuff happen. But at the same time, I also know that something's got to change and something's right. got to break hard right. for us ever to come to our senses. Because yeah. right now we're just going through life with no situational awareness, no awareness of anything. As far, and speaking of consciousness... We don't, I don't think we have any consciousness as a whole right now. And then at the same time, we also have an identity crisis. Mm. And I'm ready to see it come back to center. Like I'm ready to come back to the table and start breaking bread with people that look different, sound different, and believe differently than me. I think that's why we're here, not to destroy each other. But at the same well, time, it's really sad that we have to prepare in ways that you teach, because it's inevitable at this point that we have to have these skills. <laughs> right. And it's just, it's such a mind F to me. It's, yeah. it's seriously, it's like eating a shit sandwich is what it's like. Like, I know I've got to eat this, right. but I really don't want to. And that's where it seems like we're at. I want to talk to you about, you have, well, part of your mission is restoring efficiency or is it efficacy to intuition? I, yeah, which one is it? It would be both. Okay, all <laughs> right. Efficacy is, is what I focus on, but both both are both emerge from the training. So, yeah, I'd like and, to know about this. Yeah, absolutely, and it goes into exactly what you were talking about, right? So, when you can accurately interpret the nonverbal communication, the unspoken language, when you can accurately read people, when you're competent to navigate hostile situations then that different person is no longer a threat because you're skilled to navigate any threat that might emerge. You're not, you don't have to start the engagement with this person could potentially kill me. And right now that's all of our, that's our kind of our default state. When we engage with anybody new or different or whatever, we have no way to, to we, we have no trust, foundation of trust because there's nothing shared there. But if you're mm -hmm. capable of navigating what might happen, then you don't have to sit in a state of anxiety about the potential for it to happen. And you can engage with that person from a position of, I'm willing to extend trust to you. I'm willing to open up with cooperation rather than open up with distrust or hostility. And so I think it facilitates that exactly what you were talking about, that getting to a point where we can break bread with each other. By, develop, by, by developing the skill set to recognize when somebody can't be trusted, it allows you to then trust more freely. I like it. I like it. So Dangerously Competent is the book, yes. correct? No, the book is The Primal Primer. Oh, The right? Primal and, Primer. Okay. Yeah. And it focuses on... so. Again, back to Maslow's hierarchy. One of the big things that I believe is happening in the world is we've lost, we've abandoned, we've separated ourselves, we've detached from the pressures that that shape us into human beings, right? So think, think about like, this thing. You look at, we recognize that if we don't have some sort of physical activity, if we're not engaged in physical activity, our bodies deteriorate. Right. We, that And that used to just be part of living. Right. We had to lift heavy things. We had to move stuff around. We had to move long distances. That was just part of, of life back before humans had cities and all that kind of stuff. Right. It was just part of what it was to be human was doing all those things. Now, we've gotten away from that with technology and cooperation. So like that, and, and that's a good thing. But we've also recognized that it's a, a necessary component to optimizing our human expression. So we have proxies for that and things like gyms and marathons and fitness trainers that we've introduced proxies for those pressures because we know we need those pressures. What I'm suggesting is we need to have those same kind of proxies 
for our perceptual fitness, for our cognitive fitness, for our emotional fitness. We need to have those same kind of proxies that we don't have those right now. We've abandoned nature's pressure that shapes and forms and strengthens and optimizes those, but we haven't introduced functional viable proxies to maintain those. And so our optimization across all of those domains is suffering significantly because we don't have pieces in place. And so what the Primal Primer does is it reintroduces some, basically it's a book that teaches you primal skills, right? What we call primal skills, right? But how to acquire food from your environment, how to acquire water from your environment, how to protect yourself from the elements. It goes into situational awareness. It goes into creating baselines and recognizing anomalies and all the different tools that are used to accomplish those things. So it really is an attempt at the restoration of that foundation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs to put you back into the role of the human in, in, the, in, in satisfying your own needs, right? Instead of a mindless consumer. That could be con mindless consuming of food. And by the way, there's no judgment here because I'm just recently have started like consciously eating and where I don't have my phone on, I don't have my TV on, I don't have music on, like I'm being present with the food. And that's a new thing for me, which sounded so freaking weird, to be honest with you, because I grew up watching TV when I ate. So it's very foreign to do that. But I've noticed... I don't eat as much. I eat slower. I feel better. And I don't, I think I said I'm not eating as much, but I'm also right. eating better food right. because I actually have to think about what I'm going to eat now instead of just grabbing something. And then I also have to prepare most of my food, which requires me to pay attention or I'm going to cut my damn finger off, which I'm not a good cook. So that almost happens a lot, but it's changing things for me. But with that, I believe when we add a new discipline like that, it starts to carry over in other areas too. Absolutely. So I love what you're talking about because really, in a way, you're getting us back to tribal times, are you not? Would we yeah. actually well, had to hunt for our food and yeah. we may not eat for a couple of days. So like we're on alert and we're looking for everything. And that's it's what you're taking us back to. And I'm not saying I want to go back to chasing tigers and things like that, but we have that pendulum has swung so far to the unnatural with technology and convenience and all that other stuff, we've almost forgotten how to be human. No wonder everyone's gonna merge with machine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of simplify everything. Ah, just hook me up. I don't need I don't need food now. You can just plug me into a machine. Give me some energy. It seems like where it's going. And, and the, I get this lot suggesting or even recommending any kind of regression, right? Just like we don't wanna, just like the gym works as a great proxy for those phys physical needs, we can move forward without regression. We just have to keep bring back in proxies for the other things we need to develop and optimize as well. You don't, like with the strength stuff, you have to be able to do it. That doesn't mean you need it anymore, but you have to be, your body needs you to be able to do it. And the same thing is true about all of these things. It's not that you have to go hunting for every meal. You have to know how to do it. Your brain needs you to know how to do this stuff, right? Or I don't know if you're familiar at all with how the limbic system works and in, in the amygdala and stuff like that, but have you ever been late on an assignment? Been late on an assignment? Yeah, on an assignment. Back, back oh, in yeah, for sure. school or whatever, you're behind on an assignment. And you know <laughs> sure. how part of your brain starts worrying at you when that's the case. And it starts becoming more and more uncomfortable the longer you put it off and the longer you put it off. There's a part of your brain that's sending you a signal going, hey, this is not good. This is not good. You need to get address this. You need to address this. You need to address this. What I'm saying is that because we're, we've become so dependent rather than self-reliant, because we don't develop these capacities, we don't develop these competencies anymore, that all of us are operating under a constant state of that low-grade anxiety where our brain's going, you don't know how to keep yourself safe. You don't know how to survive your environment. 
And that's just our normal now. We're just operating all the time in that constant state of low-grade anxiety. Just any creature, if you look at, and we can see the same thing happening with animals in captivity, right? You see the killer whale whose fin flops over because that's just how they live. They're existing in a state of low-grade anxiety, just like we are. And when you're in that kind of state of perpetual low-grade anxiety, dysfunction is going to emerge from that. Our behavior is going to start to, it, one of the things that, that I talk about a bit in both in the work that I do professionally and in the book and stuff online is this idea that we become completely dependent. There's some real negative consequences to being dependent. I, and I make a distinction there. We want to be able to rely on each other. We should never be dependent on each other, at least as adults, right? Children are dependent on adults, but adults shouldn't be dependent on each other. When you're dependent, it puts you in a very vulnerable place. It, it means that you have to keep the people and the systems and the institutions that you depend on amenable to continue providing your needs when you're dependent on them for those needs. You have to be compliant. You can't resist them. You can't tell them no when you're dependent on them. And that, that that's a big piece of what I talk about when, I'm, when I say I want to restore our ability to cooperate is cooperation. A lot of people think of cooperation and they think that it, they associate it with the affirmative, with the word yes. My argument is that the word no is far more important to the concept of cooperation. If you can't say no to the interaction, it's not cooperation. It's something else. It's compulsion. It's coercion. It is some sort of force being applied. But if you can't say no to it, then you're not engaged in cooperation. So everywhere where we're dependent on these external systems, we're not. it's impossible for us to be engaged in cooperation with those external systems. We're operating from some other frame. And imagine the state of anxiety that puts you in. And right now, anxiety is the top medication in the West. It's the top mental issue that's being addressed in the West. So I'm looking at all this stuff that says, yeah, any creature, any organism in that kind of interaction and that kind of engagement would be operating in a state of perpetual anxiety. And so it's no surprise to me seeing that this is the biggest mental issue in the West right now. So. You're a Marine, right? I was, yeah, yeah. I thought it was once a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah, yes. Okay, sorry. I, the reason I'm asking is just because... I didn't join the service. I wanted to be a SEAL because I watched too many movies, but I got a football scholarship instead, so I went and played football. Didn't last very long. But nonetheless, I've always had this perception that one of the things that the military does, because my brother is a high-ranking officer, but they break you down and then build you back up in the way that I want you to be. But a big part of that is beating obedience into you, like the way they want to do things. I've always... I get excited when I meet people like yourself that didn't have a beaten out of them <laughs> because that takes, that would imagine that takes courage. I've been through some of the mental training process, like those exercises that they do. I've been a part of some of that with different leadership courses and so forth. And it is, it's like, it's a form of psychological warfare and it's really hard to maintain independent thinking or you're being aware of your own consciousness, I would imagine. At least that's what I experienced with my own experiences. So when I meet someone like yourself, that like so much of your what you're talking about is it's old school common sense for one, but two, there's a lot of independent thinking there. Yeah. So when you go through that training, were you cognitive of I need to protect myself? when you were going through the training that you went through? Or did you, once you got out of the military, snap into this reality? <laughs> no, it was part of, even before I went in, it's just, I tend in that direction. I have a bias in that direction. One of the one of the things I really 
appreciate about the Marine Corps compared to some of the other some of the other services is that the focus in the Marine Corps is on small unit leadership, right? So every Marine down to the last man knows the mission so that should everybody above them get killed in action, they can continue moving forward with the mission or take charge of everybody's that le- that's left, keep doing the mission. So the idea or the concept of leadership is really beat into you as, as a Marine in the ways that it's not in the other services. So yeah, they break it down and build you back up into a certain form. But the, the idea there, at least the way it landed on me, the way I experienced it, was that they're not replacing your ability to think they're replacing the framework that you hang your thoughts off of they still want that independent thinking they still want you to be making decisions on the fly quickly they want you making heuristic decisions on the battlefield and taking charge when nobody else is there to take charge but they want those decisions to be within a specific structure so it's they rearrange the boundaries for your freedom of thought rather than eliminating your freedom of thought and that's one of the things that i came out of the marine corps with so that's a really beautiful explanation of that process. I had it because I'm not obedient, or at least to man, I'm not obedient. And, right. and I just resist it with all change because I don't trust me. Just, I, will, I think I was born questioning things. Yeah. And uh, questioning and curious. And it just, <laughs> why I probably got in so much trouble. But I didn't have that in me to do that. But I appreciate you sharing that with me because... It helps me see it through a different lens of what it's all about. So thank you for correcting me in such a nice way. Just assume. Anyway, don't you share with everyone how they can follow you, that they can support your journey. You can share any last words, like but plug your book, plug your business, your website, social media, plug it all. The floor is yours, sir. Sure, absolutely. My my main business, my, my website is corehumancompetence.com. Right. And my, my focus there, it goes in a couple of different directions. The big one is I teach organizations that have customer facing staff or customer facing employees, the situational awareness and behavioral analysis stuff. And that's for a couple of reasons. I want them to, anyone that's got a public facing business needs to be able to read threats are inbound. But in addition to that, the ability to read body language and do the behavioral analysis and situation where it can get you out ahead of things like the angry customer. How do you diffuse that before they, they lose their mind? It can get you out ahead of this negotiations going bad. I can tell by this person's body language that this negotiation is going bad. How do I get out in front of that now? So this stuff's not just applicable to the kinetic threat. It's really broadly applicable to any kind of customer-facing business. So I do that, not just businesses, but organizational churches and schools and all that kind of stuff. I work with those kind of organizations so that anybody that's engaged with the public or students or whatever can recognize anomalies as they emerge, right? So we start to, to build the skill set for that. So that's a big part of business. I also do the training of all the other material I cover in the book. So all the all of the uh, the the primal skills, right? The how to source your own food, how to find and filter water, things like that, how to make your own rope, things like that, stuff like that I cover in the book. The book is called The Primal Primer. Uh, it's available on all online bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, things like that. I like Amazon because it, it, it's accessible to everybody. So that's one of the big ones I focus on. It, it, you can also, there's links through the website as well. My, my ask there is that if you do pick up the book and you think it might be helpful to others, please come back and leave a review. That, that makes a huge difference, particularly yeah. on, on Amazon. That's how their algorithm works is the more reviews it has, the more likely eyeballs are going to see it. I'm also, I'm on Twitter at Luke Weinhagen, my name, the link for that is on the website as well. I'm also a uh, a fellow in an organization called the Natural Law Institute. So I do a lot of my research with there, with the guys that, that I work with there to, to dig into a lot of these topics. So I'm an instructor and a fellow, a research fellow over there in, in applied theory. So those are the areas where I go in and I'll send you links for all this as well. But that's how awesome. you find me and follow what I'm doing. So. 
You're such an interesting dude. And of course, I had no idea that you were not that far from me. I hope that we should do this again. And yeah. uh, I'm super grateful for your time. This was way more interesting than I thought. I knew it'd be interesting, but it's way more interesting than I thought it would be. <laughs> and also, really, everything you're teaching carries over into all aspects of our life. Yes. And I love that. I love people that teach things that even though it's you're kind of targeting one area, it's really... It, this will show up like the lessons that you're teaching when applying it, it's going to have an impact in other areas of your life too. And I dig that a lot. So Luke, I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.